and thank you so much for coming tonight. It's good to see you. If you're online and joining us, thank you also for taking the time to do that. My name is Malcolm Duncan. I have the privilege of leading the church here at Dundonald, and um, I don't take your attendance for granted. I know you could be many other places doing many other things. So thank you for investing time and joining with us here in the room or online. At the end of November uh, 1781, a ship called um, the Zong that contained around 140 or 150 human beings had lost navigation several times off the um, east coast of the United States of America. The people on board were running out of water. So the captain of the ship started throwing them overboard. When they made landfall in Jamaica, he went to the harbour office and made an insurance claim because the people that were on board were slaves and they were considered more valuable as dead cargo than they would have been had they died on board or reached Jamaica. It led to a massive, massive case in the United Kingdom that was the beginning of a process of around 30 years of fighting um, for the rights of people who, were bo- who had been enslaved. On the 27th of March, 1807, the transatlantic slave trade was abolished. Slavery itself wouldn't be abolished for almost 30 years. But on the 27th of March, 1807, just a few days before he died, William Wilberforce saw a bill passed in the Houses of Parliament that he had campaigned for for 30 years. It was the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, and in the end it was the death knell for slavery in the British Empire. Jump forward 70 or 80 years to South Africa in the middle of the 1840s. A new theology had emerged from the Dutch Reformed Church that suggested that people that were black were less valuable than people that were white. As a result of that theology, a new political structure began to be discussed and developed. It was the theology that came first. That new theology was called um, apartheid, that new political structure that differentiated and separated people up so that there were black people who were less valuable than white people sprung out of the Dutch Reformed Church's theology of human beings. In the middle of the 1840s, they developed um, a new um, project. It was called the Great Expedition. They decided that they were going to leave the cities where there were too many black people and set up the new promised land. It's what it was described as, the new Canaan in parts of South Africa where there were no black people. They just started to develop theologies that said God had two heavens, one for black people and one for everybody, one for white people and one for everybody else that black people were somehow um, less. Jump into um, the United States around about the same time and the abolitionist movement for slavery had begun. And you will find that there were two predominant arguments in the southern states of the United States that actually ended up leading to civil war in the United States. One of them was propped up and developed by the theology of a group of people called the Southern Baptists. It was a theology that they didn't apologize for officially until 1995. And that theology said that black people were less 
that God would not intermingle races, that he didn't want white people to have anything to do with black people. And therefore, black people should be treated as less. Black people could be owned. Black people um, could be used as collateral, just like you would grow stock for slaughter on a farm. Uh, you would find in the early records of uh, slave plantations in the United States of America, the descriptions of their slaves as stock, ownership, men and women who could be done away with, who could be killed, who could be left to die with no moral compulsion whatsoever because the theology of the church that they were part of said that was okay. We've come a long way, but not long enough. I, in the early noughties, stood in India with a friend looking for two young children who had been abducted. Their parents had asked us to find them. They were seven, they were twins. And it turned out that um, the father had sold them into slavery for around 20 pounds each. And they were thrown into the concrete foundations of a building as a sacrifice to gods. And as we watched and found out this story, we decided that something needed to be done. A campaign was born that swept across the world called Stop the Traffic, an anti-human trafficking campaign that has gone around the world that I had the privilege of writing the original objectives for and being involved in its birth. I tell you all of that because of what I want to talk to you about tonight, and that is, in a series that is exploring what God is like, I want to ask, is God white? Because what we believe shapes what we do. And whether we like it or not, what we believe about God shapes what we believe about people. When you develop a theology that allows you to see other as less, you begin to justify your actions. You begin to give reasons for why you would talk slowly to people who were different, because they were obviously less intelligent than you. Or whether you could be justified in making fun of them by calling them names or giving them seats that were in a different place, or wages that were less, or treating them as if they are less. In the end, we do that if we have any kind of Christian faith at all, because we believe that God justifies it, or God permits it, or God somehow wants us to do it. So in asking the question, is God white, or God is not white, I'm addressing a fundamentally important question, and you probably will know that I don't think that he is. We'll get to the explanation of that. But it's important because across Northern Ireland and across the United Kingdom, racism may not be as obvious as you might always think, but it is there. Looking at people as if they are different, treating them as if they are less, laughing at them. Those silly and useless and, and pointless, snide and funny comments made in a room full of white men belie a misunderstanding of who God is. I would like you to turn in your Bibles with me to a couple of passages of Scripture as we begin to explore whether God is white or not and what impact that might have on the way we treat people. The first is John chapter 4, verse 24. You're going to need an open Bible, and it would be good if you could share one if you don't have one. Jesus has gone out of his way to meet a woman from a culturally different community. It's called a Samaritan. 
It's not just that she's from a culturally different community. Jesus, who was Jewish, hated, he didn't hate, but the Jewish people hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated the Jewish people. So it's alarming and surprising that Jesus goes out of his way to have one conversation with a woman who was culturally and ethnically different to him. Over hundreds of years, some of those changes and developments had taken place because in um, their history, the Jewish people in the Old Testament had uh, fractured. Some of them had said, we don't want to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship God, so we will stay here in the north in an area called Samaria and we'll build an alternative temple and we'll have an alternative service because it's easier. And they married into different customs and traditions and absorbed lots of different cultural ideas into their identity. Those people became Samaritans. They were a bastardized race in the heads of the Jews. So there was a a cultural and ethnic um, animosity between them. So to have Jesus walking out of his way to meeting this woman is remarkable in and of itself. They have a conversation around water where Jesus speaks to a woman who has had four or five husbands and is with another partner who is rejected by her community, who's going to water, to get water at a well on her own at midday when no one else can be there. But there's one phrase in this story that I want to read to you because she has a conversation with him about God. John chapter four, verse 24. They have a conversation about water that turns into a conversation about worship. And when she says that she knows that the Jews and the Samaritans will worship God, Jesus responds to her by saying, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Billy Graham in the 1960s, at the height of racial tensions in the United States of America in his Hour of Decision program, once said this, racism and injustice and violence sweep our world, bringing a tragic harvest of heartache and death, and the Christian must have nothing to do with them. The famous 19th century Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the 19th century, preaching in London in the Elephant and Castle in one of his sermons said this, be not proud of race, face, place, or grace. That's worth writing down, don't you think? Be not proud of face, of race, face, place, or grace. In other words, do not assume that you somehow have a handle on who God is because of what you look like. I think we all grew up with some level of shaping about what we think about God. Our ethnicity shapes the way we view God, perhaps knowingly or unknowingly, for me, certainly unknowingly. Why would God ever have been anything other than white when there were only a handful of people that were not white in my life? My whole assumption around what God was like was based on what I saw in churches when I went to them occasionally. That assumption is um, strengthened when you look at some of the paintings, the famous paintings of Europe, Renaissance paintings that always tend to produce images of Jesus and of God as a white man with a beard or a white, virile, beautiful young man. Or in my case, because I didn't really look at Renaissance painting a great deal. Um, Jesus of Nazareth and Robert Powell saw that more. 
Anybody remember that? There's one scene in the Jesus of Nazareth series, a television series in the 1970s, which has nothing to do with tonight. It's just interesting where Jesus's garment has a zip on it. I think that might have been slightly anachronistic. Whilst there's also a scene, by the way, in Ben-Hur, you know the chariot scene, the guy that was the baddie and that's from Glen Gormley. Did you know that? Well, there's, he is, or he was. There's a scene in that movie where if you look carefully, you can see a mini driving past in the distance. <laughs> Our images of what God is like are shaped by, if you were church, Sunday school, do you remember flannel graphs? Was the Jesus of the flannel graph black or white? Was Mary, Jesus' mother, black or white? Then flannel graphs were replaced by cartoons and pictures and books that we colored in. Images in the movies in Ben-Hur or Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments. Were all those people involved in the story of creation, the story of salvation, Israel's story, were white. But the Bible says something very different to that. It shows a very different picture of who God is. And I want to reflect on that for a moment with you. Because it's important. You see, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through to 28 tell us that God said, let us make humankind in our image. In the image of God, he made them male and female. He created them. So if God has made humanity in his image, then it's important to work out what God looks like. What God is. All good Christian systematic theology doesn't begin with us, it begins with God. Because our definition is him. He defines us. He defines who we are. We don't define who we are and then go back and check it with him. We define who we are in relation to him. So if it's true that all human beings carry God's image, what is God's image? Does God prefer white people? Bishop John Spong once said this, all human beings bear God's image and must be respected for what each person is. Therefore, no external description of one's being, whether based on race, ethnicity, gender, or sexual orientation, can properly be used as the basis for either rejection or discrimination against a person. In his famous sermon in Acts chapter 10, when Peter was being challenged by God about whether or not the new church could have both Jews and Gentiles as part of it, he saw a sheep being lowered from heaven and God saying to him, what I have declared clean is clean. You don't get to make that definition. And when he then, Peter describes to Cornelius in Samaria, the same place as that woman was from, something of what God was doing. He says this in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, for here is the truth. God is no respecter of persons. We know from the Bible, John chapter four, verse 24, that I just read earlier on, that God has no body. That God the Father is spirit, that God is in essence not material. Turn with me for a moment as we explore this for a little while before we look at its implications to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Can't hear many pages turning. A few more. Paul is writing to a young preacher called Timothy who's pastoring a church in Ephesus. And he wants them to understand who God is. 1 Timothy chapter 6, often overlooked when we reflect on things like this. 
verse 13. In the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it is he alone who has immortality and dwells in in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. The Bible makes it very clear that the God that Jewish people worship and the God of the Christian faith that's at the center, the pinnacle of our conviction about God um, is an unseen God. He has no form. He has no body. He has no color. He is not white. Nor is he black or yellow or brown. He has no color. That is not to say that color does not matter to him, but he has no color. He is a God who has no body and dwells in inapproachable light. And yet, as we read through the Bible, and those of you that are like to think about things theologically will be saying to me, but I've, I, I've read of God appearing. I've read of God coming and being seen. For example, in Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 to 8, God appears in some kind of human form to those that um, see him. Come back to it with me. It's in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's an important chapter for subjects like this. Verses, Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. As God speaks to um, Moses and Aaron and Miriam and he said hear my words when there are prophets among you I the Lord make myself known to them in visions I speak to them in dreams not so with my servant Moses he is entrusted with all my house with him I speak face to face clearly not in riddles and he beholds the form of the Lord why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses if God has no form who is Moses speaking to Who is it that appears before him? And what does he look like? When you read in Exodus chapter 24, verses nine to 11, that 74 people in Israel saw the God of Israel and that under his feet, there was a pavement of sapphire. What did they see? Did they see a black man? Did they see a a white man? Did they see, uh, what did they see? You see, we've got to step back slightly for a moment as we work out what God is like and recognize that in the Old Testament, he appeared in human form. He came somehow as a representation of who he was to those that he was engaging with in visions and dreams and some kind of engagement, but they were not permanent forms. They weren't always the same. It wasn't that they were seeing the essence of who God was. They were seeing a representation of God amongst them. In John chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus said, no one has ever seen the Father. So did Moses see God or not? The classic answer, and I think it has merit, is that what Moses saw was a pre-incarnate, a pre-Christ expression of the Son of God. That the second person of the Trinity who holds all things together appeared to Moses and others in the Old Testament in temporary human form to engage with them. 
In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 37, Jesus is challenging the Pharisees and he says to the Pharisees, you want to see the Father. You search for him. You search for the scriptures looking for him, but you haven't seen him. And then we get to the, one of the cruxes of this issue, John chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus speaks to his disciples and he wants them to understand that they're about to enter the darkest moments of their lives because Jesus is going to be crucified, he's going to be buried and he's going to rise again. They're frightened, they're anxious. It's called the farewell discourse. It begins in John 14 and goes all the way to John chapter 17. He's trying to give them courage for what's going to lie ahead. And he says to them, "Um, where I'm going, you can't come. And one of the disciples says to him in John chapter 14, we don't even know where you're going. And Jesus responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He who comes to me, and and he, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. One of the disciples responds to him and says, just show us the Father. Show us what God is like. And Jesus responds in John chapter 14, verse nine, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to say God is anything, and I will expand why I don't think this is helpful, then God looks like a Middle Eastern Jewish man around about five foot six, five foot seven, completely ordinary. God looks like nobody in this room. If we're going to pin him down to one representation, then we pin him down to a Jewish man called Jesus. I find it interesting that if you allow that reality to sink in a little bit, you'll then realize that the race that has been treated badly down through the years, who have been ridiculed and laughed at, is the race from whom God chose his son to come and whose blood bought your salvation. I've always found it interesting to talk to, and I've talked to a number of white supremacists over the years, I've always found it interesting to watch the reaction in their face when I suggest to them that their salvation was secured by a non-white man in the Middle East. God isn't white. God has shown to us perfectly and beautifully and as fully as we need in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But Jesus is not the Father. Jesus shows us what the Father is like. In Hebrews chapter one, verses one to three, we are told to see him as to see God because he is a perfect representation of his nature and the exact um, image of his character. We're told in Colossians 2.9 that God has two natures in Jesus Christ, a human nature and a divine nature, picked up again in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. So I think it's pretty obvious as you read through the scriptures that God isn't white. The problem is that many Christians believe that he is. Slightly controversial thing for me to say in Northern Ireland, and I don't want to get into trouble, so don't shout at me. But here in Northern Ireland, there are the remnants of a theology that has existed for a long time called British Israelism. One of the aspects of British Israelism is a conviction that the 10 tribes of Israel that were lost were somehow um, brought back into prominence and and identity and purpose in Anglo-Saxon people. I don't believe that British Israelism is a faithful representation of scriptural teaching. It's important that I say that to you. But part of British Israelism is also this, that in Genesis chapter four, 
from verses 11 through to 16, after Cain has killed his brother Abel, that God curses Cain or marks Cain. And British Israelism teaches that that mark is being black. That being black is an indication of God not favoring you. That God somehow has marked you as less. And it's that theology, that theology that led to the theology of the Dutch Reformed Church. And it's that theology that led to the establishment of ideas of black people traveling on separate buses and marrying in separate churches and going to a separate heaven. It's that theology that meant right up until the 1980s, many denominations still wouldn't ordain black people. So in the end, the idea of racism or God's color being irrelevant is actually not true. It's very relevant. It's very important. Because if you believe that God has created a hierarchy where some people are worth less, then that's what you will develop in your own church. And you may not realize it, but you'll evidence it in the way you talk about people and the way you speak and the way you treat others. So important and so challenging. And as you allow it to sink in, you begin to realize why this really matters. Because we begin to understand that actually Christian faith and the Christian community is supposed to represent something entirely different to that. Genesis, or I beg your pardon, Galatians chapter three, verse 38, the apostle Paul is trying to help the early church in Galatia understand something of who they are. And here's what he says to them. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek nor barbarian, Scythian nor free. All are one in Christ Jesus. The church is supposed to be the the most multi-ethnic, inclusive community on the face of the planet that celebrates diversity, that celebrates people. I think it is wonderful and beautiful and profoundly inspiring and challenging to realize that when you read Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, the creation of the first man and the first woman, we don't know what color they were. Scripture doesn't say. It just says that God made them in his image. I love that, don't you? There's no indication at all that he said, and God made them in his image and he made them white. I guess some of us would like to think that he made them from Belfast too, but it's not true. At the very center of Jewish and Christian theology is this conviction that to be human is to be made in God's image. To be a person is to be made in God's image. And you've no test to pass. How liberating is that? As we will explore this over the next few weeks, we will then discover the challenges of that. Women are as important to God as men. Protestants are as important to God as Catholics. Black people are as important to God as white people. All this leads us to a place where we begin to think, actually, Where does ethnicity and the story of color and um, culture fit into the whole Bible story? Well, we know that God is not white. We know that in him um, there is no race or color that is primary. Doesn't mean he doesn't see it, by the way. He sees it. It's just that he doesn't define us primarily by it. We know that he has chosen to reveal himself through his son, Jesus the Jew from the Middle East. But what does it mean for the way we treat people? 
What if there is no special community at all? There's nobody ethnically superior. Does your life demonstrate that? Does mine? These first human beings were not Hebrews or Egyptians or Arabs or Canaanites. They were human. The race isn't identified. The story isn't about their color. It's about their humanity. It's not about their customs or traditions. It's about who they are in relation to God, which is why we all start there. If that's true, and surely that is, then there's a profound implication for us being made in the image of God that flows out of our humanity and not out of our ethnicity. Not only that, but as God reveals himself through the people of Israel, his special people, and you've heard me say before, I'm not a replacement theologian. I believe that God still has a powerful and important purpose for Israel. What you discover is Israel itself is ethnically diverse. Their Jewish or their Semitic ethnicity and their Arabian ethnicity, Jesus would not have been white, becomes clear as you read through the pages of Scripture. But I'm sure you, like me, will be aware that Abraham is described as coming from Mesopotamia, Aramea. There's another name for that area. It's Ethiopia. He was almost certainly black. His children, Judah and Simeon, married Canaanites who would also have been black, but his other son, um, another, another one of his offspring from further down the line, Joseph, married an Egyptian. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, as Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, as they would become the people of Israel, the Hebrew people out of um, Egypt, we are told that he led, he led a mixed multitude. That's the Hebrew phrase. The Jewish people, as they would become, the Hebrew people that left Egypt were mixed race. Gosh, it's gone quiet in here. <laughs> in, in Numbers chapter 12, Moses is described as marrying a Cushite. That's an area just south of Egypt on the banks of the Nile where they're all black. <laughs> Rahab was black. Ruth was black. Adimelech in Jeremiah 38 was black. The word Cushite appears more than 50 times in the Hebrew Bible, sometimes translated as Cush, sometimes translated as Nuba, and sometimes, sometimes translated as Ethiopia. They were a powerful black African kingdom from south of Egypt that at one point controlled Egypt and, Mar and came with Jerusalem to face their opponents Assyria in the time of Isaiah. Adimelech, the black man saved Jeremiah and symbolizes the inclusion of the Gentiles in the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 38. You might say, that's all Old Testament, Malcolm. Well, here, what about this? The first non-Jewish convert recorded in Scripture in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. Now, I'm not going to unpack this too much because you'll all start throwing rotten eggs at me. It was called the Ethiopian eunuch. He was black with gender issues. And he was the first convert outside of Judaism. What does that say to us about what it means to reach out to people who are human? And how we do that and what that looks like. 
So often we make a decision about whether we will engage with somebody and share the gospel with them based on their sexual orientation or their gender or their color or their ethnicity or their culture or whether they're from one side of the fence or another side of the fence in Northern Ireland or whether they live in a certain area. None of those are primary questions. The primary question in trying to reach somebody with the love of God is, are they breathing? We love the person in front of us. We find them where they are. We do what God did for us. We go to them because he came to us. Oh, wow. Not only do we find this new identity, not only do we find this in Israel, we find it in ourselves. Read Romans chapter four, Galatians chapter three, Colossians chapter three, Ephesians chapter two. And again and again, Paul brings his readers and his listeners back to this. We have a new common identity in Christ. Brothers and sisters, Christians of other races are not only equal to us, they are part of us. And we are part of them. We are joined together in one body. In Romans chapter four, verses 11 and 12, the apostle Paul says that God is the father of all who believe. This is one of the most profoundly difficult things, I think, for people in Northern Ireland often to grasp. And yet when we grasp it, we really grasp it. And I don't mean this to sound arrogant if you're watching from somewhere else in the United Kingdom. Please don't shout at me or send me hate mail. But one of the things I love about people from Northern Ireland is that you are still readers. You're still theologians. You're still thinkers. You still want to engage with Scripture. You want to be shaped by the Scripture in a profoundly different way than perhaps other parts of the culture of the United Kingdom. It's not a dismissal of others, but there's something still here that has been lost in other parts of the UK. And I'm grateful to God for that. And yet, here, in one of the most Christianized parts of Europe, we find it so difficult to see the other. We color ourselves orange or green before we color ourselves as washed in the blood of Jesus. There's something wrong with that way of thinking. It's not just that it's uncomfortable. It's not just that we can laugh at it. The first thing you are as a Christian is a Christian. The first identity you have as a Christian is not part of a denomination or part of a stream or from County Antrim or County Down or Rathcool or Ballybean or Tully Carnets. The first flag you wrap yourself in is not the flag of the United Kingdom or the Republic of Ireland, sisters and brothers. The first flag we wrap ourselves in is the flag of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that doesn't mean that our cultural identity doesn't matter. I'm proud of my cultural identity. I want to celebrate it, but not at the expense of my Christian identity. That's first. And I know that there are people in this church who will nod their heads at me and disagree with that. But you need to read your Bible. You need to allow yourself to be shaped by the identity that God gives you first and foremost. I want our fellowship to be a fellowship that is made up of people who are believers, whose primary identity is not in their Protestantism or their Catholicism, but in their Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? 
The power of our new citizenship and our new identity springs from being part of the same body. It springs from having the same spirit. It springs from Paul's encouragement in Ephesians 4 that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and one Father of all who is above all and in all and through all. Reflect for a moment on the fact that we have a common body when we are part of Christ's body. If you're the hand, then you're connected to the foot. Or if you're the foot, you're connected to the ear. And parts of that body are not white. I was recently reading a study on what the typical Christian looks like today. What do you think that might be? If you had to name one person, I don't mean Mavis down the road. But if I was to say to you, what does the typical Christian look like now? I wonder what you would paint in your head. Here's the answer. Either a Nigerian poor, a poor Nigerian woman living in a slum or a poor South American woman living in a flavella, which is a slum. So the average Christian in the world looks poor, looks female, looks non-white, and looks like they're living in a situation where they haven't got very much. How many of us are that? <laughs> and yet that's what the average person in the body of Christ looks like. Now you could look at that and think, oh gosh, well I have nothing in common with a poor black woman in a Nigerian village. Or I have nothing in common with a, a poor South American woman in a flavella, in a, in a slum, in, in one of the Latin American states. But think about what you do have in common. We're bought with the same blood. We're held by the same hands. We were crafted by the same Savior. We read the same Bible. We have the same Spirit. We worship the same God. We meet together to serve the same purpose. We have so much in common. If we could embrace that and celebrate it, my goodness, what a powerful and beautiful thing the church would be. I guess in some ways you could summarize what I've said to you thus far this evening by saying God is not white. But color matters and our ethnicity, our culture, our stories matter. And we're called to embrace them and celebrate them and learn from them and see that beauty in one another. Because we have three things, I've addressed two of them already. We have a common past. We are all in Adam. I recently, well not recently, four or five years ago was in Iraq and met some Christians who were being persecuted for their faith. None of them white. And I said to them, they were hanging crosses from their rear view mirrors and living in container trucks where they'd gone out and bought fairy lights that cut holes in them and put plastic in to make windows. And they'd gone out and bought fairy lights to make a cross and put it in the window. When ISIS was 10 miles away, I said to them, what? Do you think that's maybe a bit unwise? And they said, well, Jesus never apologized for us. Why should we apologize for him? I met a man who loved Jesus very much. Most of, most of his theology I would disagree with. He came from the Orthodox Church tradition. And after a few minutes of conversation, he said to me, you're really uncomfortable talking to me, aren't you? I said, well, yes. I said, there's so much in your theology that I disagree with. 
He said, well, there's a lot in your theology I disagree with. I said, what do you think of grace? He said, I'm saved by grace. Without grace, I wouldn't be here. And then he said to me, took my hand, and I can't do a Middle Eastern accent. I'll end up sounding Pakistani because every accent I do sounds like that. (laughs) And he said to me, took my hand, and he said, brother, when ISIS killed my family, when they cut off the heads of my family and put them on the posts outside my home, they did not first ask them whether they were Orthodox or not. They killed them because they were Christians. We face a common enemy. We have a common identity. And we have a common future. You cannot read the book of Revelation without discovering it. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, chapter 7, verse 9, chapter 10, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 9, chapter 13, verse 7, chapter 14, verse 6, and chapter 17, verse 15. You hear something like this repeated again and again. God has a people from every tribe and every tongue and every, 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 every part of the world. <laughs> if we cannot learn what it is to live together with this wonderful diversity now, then heaven is going to be an extremely frustrating place for us all. I look across Belfast and I don't see a, multi- a multicultural city as much as I would see it in London. We lived in London for nearly 10 years or just outside it. But I do see people from different stories, from different backgrounds, from different colors. Our church has people from different ethnicities, from different communities, from different stories. Embrace that. Enjoy it. Celebrate it. Let it flow and shape the way you think. But perhaps this could land for you and for me in this common idea. There might be people here and your whole identity is being shaped by being not something else. And the church might have made you feel that. I'm sorry if that is your story. Some of you may have felt that your background excludes you from God's grace because you come from a different cultural background because there's a different kind of story in your history somewhere. Maybe it's because you come from the wrong side of the fence, because you come from the wrong part of town. Maybe you've been taught of a God who was bipartisan, prejudicial, discriminatory. That's not the God I worship. And it's not the God of scripture. And the God that is here tonight, present by the power of the spirit, redeemed us all through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and welcomes us all into a new family. I wonder if there's any of us that have looked at what has been done in the name of the church over the years and it's sullied our view of the church, it's sullied our view of ourselves, it's made us feel as if God wouldn't love us or want us. Imagine being part of a family with so much diversity. I love it. I love what it teaches me. I love what it does for me. I love how I am changed by rubbing up against difference. But maybe you're frightened of that. Tonight, the God who is not white doesn't despise your whiteness. He doesn't ignore your culture. 
but he invites you into a brand new one, full of possibility. And maybe he invites you to lay down some of your prejudices. Maybe in this room, there's an unspoken racism that we could deal with. That sees people as less because they're different in color. I wonder whether God might want to release some chains here. I can't really guess that. Sometimes you don't realize that you're impacted by prejudices. Some years ago, there were two stories, two things happened to me that I want to tell you before we pray. One was, um, I was having a conversation with a woman that I met. She was a black woman in a church. And uh, she told me, she introduced herself, and I said, what do you do? She said, work in the NHS. And I said, oh, are you a healthcare assistant? And she said, no, I'm a gynecology consultant. And I realized I had inbuilt prejudices. We lived in a second story. We lived in a place called Thamesmead. From the day I arrived to the day I left, I hated it. We made a huge mistake buying a house there. Honestly, there's a long story behind that, but it would only bore you. And about a year and a half in, I said, Debbie said to me, we have to leave. I said, oh, thank God for that. Can we put the house in the market? She said, yes. We put it on the market. And I said to Debbie, nobody's ever going to buy this house. We were half a mile up from, an open, from a sewer that didn't work beside the river with mosquitoes flying in. So you were locked in in summer in case you got bitten alive. And when you went out, you had to wear a mask because it nearly killed you, the smell of it. <laughs> Honestly, it was just a terrible experience. And I said to Debbie, nobody's going to buy this house because nobody would want to live here. The day after we put it in the market, a black Ghanaian family came to view it. They loved it. Absolutely loved it. And they said, can we buy it? I said, yes. <laughs> and they said, can we buy everything in it? And we were like, yes. <laughs> so a couple of days later, they got in touch and said that uh, they were arranging details. And I said to Debbie, who's their mortgage provider? And Debbie said, they're buying it cash. I said, this is dodgy. <laughs> they're not going to buy it or else they're money laundering. It's one or the other. <laughs> they did buy it and they bought it cash with money that was as good as anybody else's. It was my prejudices. It was my assumptions. It reverts in reverse, by the way. I used to work with a man called Joel Brown, or Joel Brown, Joel um, Edwards. Joel Brown's, you know who Joel Brown is, he's a guy in our church that's not well. Joel Edwards. 
And he was the director of something called the Evangelical Alliance. He was from Jamaica. And he was on a radio, he was going on to a, a news night interview that he and I were prepping him for one, one time, a long time ago. And the researcher was on the phone with him and said, can I just talk to you about what you would say, Reverend Edwards? And he answered all the questions and she said, very good. Yes, that's really helpful. That's perfect. And she said, just one last question. Are you colored? That's, you don't ask that. And he said, I beg your pardon. She said, are you colored? He said, I beg your pardon. She said, are you colored? And he said, the color of my skin has absolutely nothing to do with the questions that you're asking me and my answers. They are just as politically robust and theologically correct. How dare you ask me that question? There was a silence at the other end of the phone and she said, I didn't ask you where you're colored. I asked you where you're colored. Do you wear a clerical collar? <laughs> so we can end up getting the wrong end of the stick with this and becoming so fearful that we don't know how to engage with it. Or we can become so fearful of ourselves that we're afraid to acknowledge our own weaknesses. All of us have prejudices. We've all got something that we need God to minister into. But what a remarkable community it would be that names its prejudices and learns how to love despite them and gets through them by laying them at the feet of the cross. Let's pray. Joining us online and here in the room, I want to ask a couple of questions which are rather different to the ones that I would normally ask, and then a couple that I would ask always. I'm aware that um, race, ethnicity, and identity can be difficult to kind of confront, particularly if we've lived with prejudices ourselves or we have expressed them. There might be people here that come from backgrounds where there are different cultures and ethnicities that have been mixed in your upbringing and you've been taunted or made fun of about that and you've been made to feel less. I'm so sorry where that has happened. But I guess that all of us have to stare into our own souls and work out where we are on this. So I'm going to ask you to silently join me in prayer as we offer our own lives to God in an act of humility. Father, I am sorry when I have allowed latent prejudice to shape my responses to people because of their ethnicity. Forgive me when I make myself superior because I am white or because I am black. Forgive me when I make you in my image instead of seeing your image in each other. Forgive me for the times that my prejudices have shaped my words or my responses or my actions. Forgive me when I've twisted your word or allowed a simple reading of it to make it feel like I was better or superior to other people. Would you please help me to see the humanness of the people in front of me 
before anything else. Would you help me to encounter people where they are, not where I think they should be? And help me not to create some kind of test for people to pass before I will open my heart or my hand toward them. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the Jew. The Middle Eastern man whose blood was shed for me. Thank you that he stepped into space and time to redeem me, to forgive me and give me hope. I never thought I was worth that. But I receive your grace and your mercy. And I ask you to help me to live for you. And help me to be part of a community or a church which is diverse and beautiful and vibrant and full of life. Now, as we continue to pray, I want to ask a couple of simple questions. If you're online and responding, then you can respond by emailing my colleague Pip at pip at dundonaldelam.church or myself, Malcolm at dundonaldelam.church. If you're in the room, then um, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Perhaps you have lost your way a bit. And tonight you realize that God is your home and you want to come home. You've missed the security of his grace and his mercy. And the other stuff just hasn't satisfied you. Only God can do that. If you would like to recommit your life to Christ, having once walked with him, if you want to lay your life down before him and say, Lord, have all of me now, then I'm not going to prolong this. Could you just raise your hand for me so that I can see it and pray for you? Thank you so much. How wonderful. Anyone else? Hallelujah. If you're here tonight or you're online and you've never become a Christian before, you've never heard about Jesus and his love for you and you heard me telling you that he loved you and he's died for you and you know that you need to be set free. If you'd like to become a Christian, if you'd like to start the Christian journey, then would you raise your hand? No one's looking, just me. Almost every week for nine months now we've seen people become Christians. It's wonderful. It doesn't solve everything, but it's the most remarkable decision. Is there anybody who would like to become a Christian tonight? Don't be afraid. It doesn't matter what age you are. If you'd like to do that after the service, there are great brown envelopes on the reception desk. Take one. Or chat to one of us as you leave and we can help you. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the wonderful gift of grace in our lives. Speak into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And help us to challenge assumptions and be part of the new humanity on earth, which is the church. Full of life and vibrancy and beauty. And may this church be a place that welcomes all people. 
gives them the opportunity to see and hear the gospel and to respond to Jesus Christ. Amen.